Hope, peace, love, and joy to you from the Lord who rose up the sprout of Jesse to win salvation for us. Our text for our sermon is from the Gospel History according to the Evangelist Luke, chapter 1, verses 30 through 36. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, because you have found favor with God. Listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the, one, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Listen, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, even though she was called barren, and this is her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible for God. This is the word of our Lord. Advent means to come, and as we look for the coming of the Lord during this Advent season, we have asked the we have had the theme questions for the coming of our Lord. And today we will join with Mary and ask, "How will this be?" Mary's "How will this be?" is quite a bit of difference from what Zechariah had asked the angel. Now, again, let me remind you that when Luke introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he says that they are righteous before God. That means they believed in the coming Savior. They believed in God's grace, and God credited it to them as righteousness. That means they were, shall we say, role model believers. However, Zechariah needs empirical evidence. His wife is past menopause, and he himself is pretty old. And so when Zechariah asks, how can I be sure of this? Zechariah is asking for empirical evidence. You want to say an angel standing before you, what more miracle do you need? That's not what Mary is asking. Mary's asking, how will this be? She accepts that it's going to happen. She believes it. She's asking to put it in other terms. How is the Lord going to bring this about? And the answer really is, this is God's business. God's going to take care of this, right? As he ultimately will say, for nothing will be impossible for God. But before the angel says that, he says, listen, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, even though she was called barren, and this is her sixth month. Now, recall that Zechariah and Elizabeth will be giving birth to, they'll be the parents of, the one who is the forerunner for the Lord. And the conception of the forerunner for the Lord is a forerunner for the Lord. Follow along. Elizabeth had been barren her whole entire life. That's not good, right? And then she's past menopause. And Zechariah himself is no young man. So this is a miracle. Now today you can take an egg that's been fertilized and implanted into a uterus. And that's all above my, uh, my, my knowledge and skill level. So I don't want to compliment on things I'm fairly ignorant of. But even today, it takes quite a lot of technology and science. But in those days, that didn't exist. This would clearly be a miracle. Now, it's not that this was a minor miracle, but compared to the miracle of the virgin birth, it's not quite as big of a deal, is it? Even though it's still a miracle. So the conception of John the Baptist, the forerunner for the Lord, is uh, a shadow of a miracle, yet still a miracle in comparison, preparing the way for the bigger miracle when only time in history it ever happens a virgin gives birth to a son. 
And so the neat thing here is Mary is not wavering saying, I need further proof. Mary's asking, how is this going to happen? How is the Lord going to bring this about? And yet, even in the answer the angel gives, Mary is being given something she didn't even need. She didn't ask for. She's being told, here's something to even confirm what you're already trusting in. She will, out of love for her relative, she will go and visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth will be six months pregnant. And it's going to confirm, yes, everything the Lord said that Mary already believes is true. Now, would we get the virgin birth out of what's out of the prophecies of Scripture? We want to remember that the very first prophecy of the coming Lord happens right after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and they hide from God. And then when God calls them to account, they pass the buck and, and, and Ultimately, then God, and this would be the pre-incarnate Christ. That means before he took on human flesh, before the Holy Spirit knit him in the virgin's womb. He says in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the devil. And between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. Now, the word seed is what a male provides in the ingredients for a baby. But he's talking about the woman. I don't know if a person at Adam and Eve's time would immediately say, ah, virgin birth. We get that with New Testament clarity. However, there's something there that you'd say, wow, the wording here is pretty weird. There's going to be something different about this coming uh, Savior who's going to destroy the work of the devil, this coming Savior who's going to be a human being. But, you know, you wouldn't need New Testament clarity to connect these dots. 700 years before the Savior was born, there was the prophet Isaiah. And I always say Isaiah is fascinating because when he records his prophecies, he records them as Hebrew poetry. So Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a terrible king. He's the king of Judah. And he's not a believer. He knows the Lord exists. But he knows that Jerusalem is about to be attacked and he's trying to figure out what he can do. And he's made an alliance with other political entities so that uh, he's trusting in human alliances. And God sends him the message, don't need to worry about any of that. I'm going to take care of this. And it's there, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, where we're told the Lord spoke to Ahaz again. He said, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. Ask for it either in the depths below or the heights above. God says to Ahaz, I'm going to take care of your problem with your enemies. You don't even need to worry about political alliances with other human beings. Here's a blank check. Fill it in. Tell me what miracle you want that you will see. Yes, I can trust in God and see that I'm a gracious, loving God. Now, the one who replaces Ahaz, his son Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the more outstanding of believers. He's a sinner like you and I, but he does trust in God. At one point in time, Hezekiah gets sick, and God basically gives him a blank check like this. And Hezekiah says, I'd like to see my shadow move backwards. Which basically would mean the world, if you think about it scientifically, would have to rotate the other way, right? And God gives him that. So he would know he would recover from his illness. Well, Ahaz is not a believer, even though he knows God exists. He doesn't want to trust in God's grace. Sometimes Christians do this, where they try to sound pious. They try to sound like outstanding believers, and yet they're actually trying to hide their sin. So we're told in verse 12, but Ahaz responded, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. 
Doesn't that sound pious? Except for God has just told him, blank check, I want you to test me so you can see you can believe in me. He's disobeying the word of God in trying to sound pious. The truth of the matter is, he does not want anything to do with God, God's grace, or God bailing him out. He would rather trust in his political alliances and doesn't think, gee, if I make a political alliance to bail me out from this invading army, then the people I make an alliance to is going to recognize they could beat me in battle because I would be weaker than them, and then I'm going to be subjugated and enslaved to them. So the text continues, uh, verse 13, so Isaiah said, listen now you house of David, is it not enough for you to test the patience of men? Will you test the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign for all of you, not just Ahaz, for all of you. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Ahaz needs deliverance from an enemy, so he's not enslaved. There's a bigger deliverance coming from the enemy that is the devil. The Hebrew word Emmanuel, several Hebrew words shoved together, it means God with us. A virgin's going to conceive a child and he's literally going to be God with us. So 700 years before the birth of Christ, you'd have a pretty good idea that the Savior is going to be God taking on human flesh. Through a virgin, it's God with us. But ultimately, the answer to Mary's question is, for nothing will be impossible for God. This is a miracle. This is a very big miracle. The Lord becomes part of creation to redeem fallen mankind with a bang, with a gigantic miracle. And hides it from most of the world, doesn't he? But the interesting thing is Mary needs to know God's got this. Nothing's impossible for him. Because what happens after she's done visiting her relative Elizabeth and John the Baptist is born and she returns back to Nazareth? Well, the guy she's engaged to... um, Joseph's going to notice she has a baby bump. Uh Uh-oh. Joseph's going to plan on divorcing her because he knows he hasn't done what causes that. God intervenes as Joseph. It's okay. This is a miracle from me. And think about when Mary asks, how will this be? If you're being told of a miracle, uh, is there something I need to do involved with this? Maybe I need to marry Joseph early. Nope, nope. This is 100% God's work. God has got this, and he's given you the faith to trust in him. There's quite a lot of difference between Mary's how will this be? How's God going to bring this about? Don't worry about it. This is a miracle. God's got this versus Zacharias. How can I be sure of this? I need empirical evidence. And when it comes to God's word, there are many times where you and I have to be careful that, in faith, that we're not in a weak faith saying, how can I be sure of this? That instead we're saying, how can How will this be? How is God going to bring this about? And so just right away as we talk about God, the Trinity. God is three persons in one God, one God in three persons. They're not three gods. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father or the Son. The Father or the Son are not the Holy Spirit. And yet they're one God in three persons. This defies science. This defies math. How will this be? How is this? It's God. God created the scientific principles that he uses to govern this universe. He's not subject to them. It's how he governs the universe normally for you. And when he chose us to govern it in a different way, that's a miracle. But when we ask, how will this be? 
I'm always reminded of a friend of mine that one of the very first times, the very first time I ever took somebody through a membership class and uh, going through what I just explained about the Trinity. And for me, because I used to study a lot of math and a lot of science, I'm explaining all the complications and how it contradicts everything. And, and my friend, he's truly a brother in Christ, says, I don't see what the big deal is. Bible says Jesus is God, God is God, the Father's God, the Holy Spirit's God, that they're, not, that they're not blended together, they're three distinct persons, and that's what the Bible says. See, that man had a faith like Mary. How will this be? Well, God says so. Nothing's impossible with God. What a beautiful faith to be commended. But there are lots of times when it's very difficult for us. Take a look at the birth of our Savior. God becomes a man. And that seems pretty simple, but throughout history, there's been all kinds of confusion about this. People often think that God becoming a man means he takes on humanity, like putting on a pair of coveralls, and he can take those coveralls off. No, that creates all kinds of misunderstanding. And once we start messing with God taking on humanity, we lose the comfort of the salvation he won for us. He stops being our substitute. He's 100% man, 100% God, and those two attributes are in communication with each other and inseparable communication. They're not blended together to make a new nature. Otherwise, he would not be man, nor would he be God. And they're inseparably communicated with each other. And he hides his deity so that there's something else that's very difficult to comprehend when he's anointed by the Holy Spirit as he's hiding his deity, not making full use of his knowing everything, being all powerful. The Holy Spirit often guides him to the places he needs to be and things like this. This are all things that can blow our mind. How can this be? With God, nothing is impossible. How can it be that God lives as our substitute? Well, as man, he can be tempted in every way. In God, he can be perfectly holy so that he cannot fall into that temptation, so that he can be our substitute. If the two were blended together, if it was a new, uh, a, a new nature, he would not be our substitute. If they were like two boards glued together, like he was putting on coveralls or something, he would really be God and not man. So we have to understand this in a way that we can see him as our substitute and the two natures are inseparably in communication with us. How can God be put on a cross and die? Well, before that, we have to ask, how can God the Son be abandoned by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and technically be abandoning himself? That defies human logic, but with God, nothing is impossible. And yet that, if he was not God, he would not be able to bear up the punishment for all the world's sins and all of your sins and all of my sins. So the only thing that damns a person to hell is rejecting it. And how can God die? God is immortal. God cannot die. But as a man, he can die. And yet, as God, how can God the Father raise the Son, God the Son raise the Son, and God the Holy Spirit raise the Son? And yet, if the three did not raise him, then when he said on the cross, it is finished, we would lose our comfort that he did all the work to save us. How can this be? He's God. And if he did not do all the work to win salvation, to earn your forgiveness, he would have stayed in that tomb. What a comfort. And then how can God, who has descended, taking on human, a human nature, then ascend to heaven, still with that human nature, never losing it again in all eternity, and rule in heaven not only to bring you in the faith, but keep you in the faith? With God, nothing is impossible. And so lots of times we see churches that will say they're Bible churches. And there's a litmus test we can take to see if they truly believe God's word. Now, a litmus test, of course, litmus paper, you have a liquid, you think it's an acid, you stick it in it. You might remember this from your school days. And, and if it changes colors, you've got an acid. It's a very simple test. 
All we have to do is look at what churches teach on the Lord's Supper. This, through since the Reformation, has proven to be one of the very simple tests. When Jesus instituted, as recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't say this becomes my body so that it ceases to be bread and wine. He doesn't say this in, in envelopes my body and my blood as if, it, as if they're putting a little tiny piece into it. Nor does he say this represents my body, this represents my blood. And finally, he doesn't say one of the most ludicrous things that ever came out of the Reformation, where it was John Calvin taught that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, that your soul goes up to heaven, as if Jesus' deity was a pair, uh, humanity was a pair of coveralls that's hanging up in a closet, and it partakes of the body and blood of the Lord in heaven and then comes back down. Wow, you're adding a lot of words there. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now that's a comfort for you and I. And in case we don't, in case we don't trust the words of institution, which we should, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul points out, asking a question, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a joint partaking or joint participation of the blood of Christ? Is not the loaf that we break a joint participation, a joint partaking of the body of Christ? The point here is, it's a miracle. How can this be? That's up to God. That's God's problem. But we receive the body and blood of the Lord in a miraculous way that defies human understanding, and it actually nourishes our faith. It actually gives us the forgiveness of sins. Ah, but even that defies science, because if you think about it, we'll pick Monday, Thursday, the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. On Monday, Thursday, pretty much every Christian church that has any view of Jesus' command, do this in remembrance of me, celebrates the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, if every church is celebrating the Lord's Supper, so everybody, let's this would be impanation, which are in, in, in the enveloping of his body, which we've already discovered, discussed as wrong. But if just the tiniest little microscopic piece was given to everybody, everybody in the state of Wyoming alone, which is one of the least, the least populated state in the union of the United States, everybody in Wyoming alone would have taken on more than enough flesh and blood, as the argument goes, to devour the whole entire body of Christ. How would anything be left over? because of the communication of attributes. He's not just a man, he's God, and the deity is communicated to the humanity. And so if you want to know if a church actually believes the word of God, one of the simplest places to go is just find out what they actually teach about the Lord's Supper. How can this be? With God, nothing is impossible. God is above all the rules of science. He made them, he's the miracle worker. And another one we can look at is simply baptism. On the day, uh, uh, Pentecost Sunday, when the crowd asks the disciples, what should we do? Peter tells them in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39, repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, it, and you will receive the gift, specifically the Holy Spirit, resulting in the forgiveness of sins. This promise is for you and your children. How many churches scratch off your children? How many churches scratch off the forgiveness of sins? And I, I'm saying this because we all have a sinful nature and we don't want to be like pious Zechariah who turns around and starts saying, how can I be sure of this? We want to be like Mary saying, how will this be? And then trusting for God, nothing is impossible. Because when we are baptized, Jesus assures us, as we're told in John chapter three, that we receive the Holy Spirit. He is sealed in our hearts and we receive the forgiveness of sins. So there's quite a bit of difference between Mary's question and Zachariah's, and I don't want to beat up on Zachariah at all. He had a sinful moment. He was clearly a believer, righteous before God. 
But Mary's question is, how is the Lord going to bring this about? And the angel's answer is, one, it's already happened in a lesser miracle, basically, to your relative Elizabeth. Go visit her. It's going to confirm your faith. Uh, he doesn't exactly say that, but she already has a faith. He says, with God, nothing is impossible. And this is the fulfillment of Scripture. And for you and I, there's lots of times in life where the Scripture promises something to us by telling us something. Every time Scripture tells us something, it's God's promise to us. And sometimes it's difficult, isn't it? We want to be like Zechariah and say, how can I be sure of this? But by faith, we're able to say, how will this be? And the answer scripture provides, as the angel did that day, is for nothing will be impossible for God. So God has taken on human flesh. He lived and died for you. He rose victorious for you. He's promised that to you. When you're baptized, it's sealed. The Holy Spirit's sealed in your heart. When you take the Lord's Supper, it's nourished and strengthened. His word is always nourishing that faith where it's always telling you nothing's impossible for God. You are saved. God has got this. Cling to his promises. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our sin-enshrouded hearts and his light will continue to guide our feet onto his path of peace. Amen.